Welcome to Understand Suicide, the podcast of journalist and therapist Paola Fontanelli. Since her father's suicide in 2005, Paola has dedicated her life to breaking the silence around this most stigmatized of subjects. Her book, Understanding Suicide, Living with Loss, Paths to Prevention, was nominated for the National Book Award in Brazil, and the English edition is now available on Amazon. Hey there, I am Lori Masakai. Welcome to 250 and Beyond. This is episode 127 with my guest, Paula Fontanella. I want to thank you for being here. I'm grateful to you. I'm giving you my virtual hug. I'm giving you an extra tight one today. I actually could use one back today, and I know Paula can as well. We're coming together to talk about a heavy topic, one that is not always talked about, and it's hard to talk about, and it's suicide. And we are talking about it because this conversation needs to come to the table with ourselves, with our families, and with our loved ones. And my guest today, you're going to be blown away by the straightforward information that she gives to us. You're going to learn some things, and I hope that you're going to feel comforted by this. That's how I felt. And I just thought about this this year in 2020. I looked around. I saw a lot of friends posting on Facebook, not a lot, but a few friends posting on Facebook about just, you know, struggling with some mental health. And I've read in the news and seen in the news that people are taking their own lives. And this is this rate of suicide that is in the news right now. I thought, what are we going to do? Wait around until it's too late. Let's start talking about this. And why don't we talk about it? And I really had questioned it. I was going to do it by myself and just do all of my research, which I did, but I didn't feel confident in it. I didn't want to mislead anybody. I didn't want to have the wrong information, and I am so happy that I made that decision. I found out in June that an old friend of mine died by suicide, and my heart breaks for her and her family. And when that happened, I kicked it into gear and said, okay, let's talk about this. So my guest, Paula Fontanella. She has been through this. She lost her father in 2005 to suicide. Paula is a Brazilian journalist who decided to change her careers after the death of her father. Since then, she has finished a training in psychoanalysis in Brazil and a master's in clinical mental health in Portland, Oregon. Today, she works as a therapist at Life Counseling in McMinnville, Oregon. As part of what she considers her mission, she hosts a podcast and a YouTube channel called Understand Suicide, which has listeners from all over 60 countries. She is the author of the book, Understanding Suicide, Living with Loss, Past to Prevention, and it was the finalist of the Brazilian Book Award. Today, she is going to talk about the story of losing her father and her recovery and how she felt after her father died, dealing with feelings of guilt and grief after someone you love dies by suicide, Paula's work and what she's doing, and all of the people that she is helping debunking the myths and the misconception of suicide, the warning signs of someone who is contemplating contemplating suicide, and how to talk to someone and what you should say and not say, and the language around suicide and the red flag language and the continuum of suicide. I am not kidding you. I learned so much. I know you're going to learn so much. I hope that you stay until the end. If you need to take a break, take a break, but come back. And I just want you to sit back, give yourself some extra love right now. I'm loving on you. And I'm just, again, so grateful to you for being here. Enjoy this conversation with Paula. 
Hi, Paula. Hello. Hi. Welcome to 250 and beyond. Yeah, sounds good. 50 <laughs> is my number. <laughs> 50 is your number. Oh, we're talking about such a heavy topic today, but it has been lovely just talking to you for the past 10 minutes or so and really getting on the same page here and why we are bringing this conversation to 250 and beyond. And I just want to thank you again from the bottom of my heart for being here and for really the work that you're doing. Well, Laurie, thank you for your bravery, because as you said, it's a very sensitive topic and not many people are up to it because it's scary and I understand. So I'm yes. very happy to be here. Thank you. Thank you. And I was telling Paula that I was going to do this by myself to just open up the conversation because there were a couple of things that came up for me where I thought we need to be talking about it, but I didn't want to say the wrong thing. So now I've already told Paula, if I say the wrong thing, feel free to correct me because that's what we're here. We are here to learn about suicide and understand it. So the first question I ask all of my guests is, what is your age and how do you feel about aging? I love aging. Uh, apart from the aches and pains, I, I don't have any problems. I am 53. I actually just turned 53 two days ago. So very recently. <laughs> I emailed you on your birthday. <laughs> yeah, you did. <laughs> when you said, yeah, I talk about 50. So wow, that's good. That, that, that's my age group. <laughs> Happy birthday. Oh, thank you. Thank you. And I, I feel great. I really don't. I know this is almost a cliche. I don't feel 50. I don't even feel 40 at all. I enjoy my life and I know what my priorities are. And I think that's very important. I have great relationships. Nothing beats that. Okay. So share your story. How did you come to do the work around suicide? What, what led you there? 2005, my father took his life. And back then I didn't know anyone. I had zero experience with suicide. I had never known anyone or anyone ever even talked about, you know, teen, even as a teenager, I didn't know anyone who did that. And it was just not in my radar at the time. But my father did that in 2000, January of 2005. And my head just stopped. And this is very common with families and survivors. We call lost survivors. You know, you have all these questions in your mind. And the way that I deal with pain is to try to understand what happened. So I started looking for books. The first thing I did as a journalist, because I was a journalist back then, I don't think you ever stopped being a journalist, but I started looking for books and I couldn't find anything in my country. I'm from Brazil. And, but I speak English. So I started buying books and I, I was like obsessively reading about suicide because there's so many questions, even though I knew the struggles he was going through at the time, but still it's just, it's just such a massive decision and it's against our basic instinct of self-protection and mm -hmm. self-preservation mm -hmm. that I just, I started reading and reading and reading. And I realized that there are so many thousands and thousands of families in my country was, they were going through the same thing. And like myself, couldn't find information anywhere. Nobody, even therapists at the time, it was so hard to find anyone to talk to. It was such a taboo back then in 2005 in Brazil. So I decided to 
break the silence and to work on breaking the silence and the stigma because there was nobody to talk to. There was no information out there, no websites, nothing. So I wrote, I decided to write a book. So for three years, I interviewed specialists, people from here, from Australia, from the UK, those who really had, who had books, authors of books on suicide. And then I published in 2008, a book, Understanding Suicide. And I have the English version too, but I decided that that was my mission because so many people were going through what I was going through and I could help with that. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I wrote the book, I put up a website and I still have it in Brazil. I have one in English. And last year I started the podcast in the YouTube channel. So that's how it started, but it's just so much pain and so many questions And I find that to me, it was so helpful to get all that information. And I hear from people, people who read my book or contact me through my website or, or my podcast that it really, really helps to hear because I interviewed a lot of people who attempted suicide, families who lost suicide. So the book is an overall um, coverage of, of what suicide is, but it has a lot of interviews. So you connect because people connect with stories. So there are a lot of stories in the book and that helps a lot. And, and I know that it helps when you hear from someone who went through the same thing. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's how it started. And it is such a taboo. So help us break this taboo and the stigma around it. Talk about the myth, of course, and then what we can do to bring up the conversation with our families and our loved ones before it's too late. I'm happy that you brought it up, the myths, because the first one is it has to do with talking about suicide. And that's a very important one, which is if you talk about it, you're going to put the idea in their heads. And that's why people avoid the subject. And even the media, one of the things that I did a lot during uh, the times when I was writing the book and many years late, before I came to the U.S. in Brazil, I would train journalists to talk about suicide because the media, they avoid and it's for the be- with the best of intentions. Us journalists, we never write about suicide unless it's a celebrity or something really major, but it's just not talked about or it didn't used to be talked about because we're afraid of contagion. That if you talk about it, someone who is at risk may do it. And there there are some controversies about that, but for example, it depends on the age group. When you talk about teenagers, for example, they're more susceptible to that. So you have, but the thing is, and and that's what I used to say to my colleagues, silence doesn't help. What you have to do is to write it appropriately in a way that has prevention as the main objective. So there are many rules, and I have a lot of information on that on my website too, on how to talk about suicide, how to write about it, things to avoid, language, very important. So the first myth is, is that you do not put the idea in somebody's head. Actually, it has the, what research shows is the opposite because it's such a taboo that a lot of people have ideation, they think about suicide, they're planning suicide, but they don't feel they can talk to anybody because of their reaction. So if you open the conversation and the dialogue, it can really, really be helpful and make a huge change. I don't know how many times I've heard from people that when I ask what helped or what helped to change your mind, 
it's most, I would say at least 95% of the time they say it was someone who listened, <laughs> someone who was there for me. So if you thinking, if you have someone close to you and you believe that they're thinking about suicide, open up the dialogue. And if you, if you check on my website on the things that you should avoid saying, you know, judgment, don't talk to them with any rights and wrongs or giving advice or saying that you shouldn't do this because of this and that, that doesn't help. But I have a lot of um, ideas. If I even give suggestions of things that you could say on the website, it's understandsuicide.com. Yes. So it's very, so that's one of them. The other one that I could mention is, oh, people who really want to do it won't talk about it. They won't say anything. They just go ahead and do it. And that's not true because we hear, we hear that about teenagers sometimes. Oh, it's because they're teenagers. They're talking about that, but they don't really mean it. It's a, it's a teenage thing, right? I've heard that many times, but it's not true. Most people before they take their lives, they, they say something or they show some kind of sign. There are warning signs. So pay attention. It's not natural for human beings to think about suicide unless there is really a huge crisis going on or maybe a mental health issue. Mm-hmm. So if they talk to you, please listen. So that's another mm-hmm. myth that's important to, mm-hmm. to mention. They're not crying wolf. No, no. Yeah. Okay. It's a cry for help. Mm-hmm. It's a cry for help. That's what it is. They're, they're giving you the chance to help them. That's what it is. Well, I'll definitely have your website linked in the show notes so you can go and look at it because that is, you know, when somebody comes to you and says how they're feeling about it, you know, your response and using the correct language and just listening mm-hmm. and not, not trying to talk them out of it. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, and it's not even that, but it's, it, it has more to do with emotions and how you react because, of course, suicide is so scary. And even when you talk about people just, you know, you, it's even hard to breathe sometimes. You don't know what to say. So the first thing to do is no, don't be judgmental. Don't, don't go into rights and wrongs. Don't say things like, but you have everything. How can you even think about that? This is the, the most important thing to keep in mind, Laurie, is that someone who is talking about suicide, most of the times they don't want to die. They want to end the pain they're going through. So if you keep that in mind, maybe it helps for you to listen with compassion and to see ways in which you can help. Usually when they're going through that kind of pain, they have a very, we call it constricted mind. They think that that's the only thing left, the only option left. So it helps to bring hope into the conversation, to maybe help them see that there are other opportunities and other ways for the problem that they're going through, because it's usually a personal crisis. Mm-hmm. It used to be that we, even I use my first edition of the book that we used to say, and that's what research showed then, that more than 90% of suicides were related to mental health issues. That's not true anymore. We know now that that's not true. The latest numbers we have for the US, for example, we know that 54% are not related to mental illness. So it's personal crisis. 
and that's and that's what that's a good thing to keep in mind because you can ask about that what's going on in your mind how can i help this you know this there is a guy that i have great respect for his name was edwin schneidman he he died a few years ago and i was fortunate enough to interview him he's considered the father of suicidology he was the first guy here in the u.s who started the first clinic for suicide prevention the first book written about suicide he has a great book called the suicidal mind so he was the number one and he used he said something very important if you if you know someone who is contemplating suicide there are two questions you should ask where does it hurt and how can I help? Mm. It's beautiful, isn't it? And so simple. It is. It's beautiful yeah. and it's so yeah. simple. Oh my goodness. What led him to the work? He, it, it's actually a, a very interesting story. He tells the story in his book that he, when he finished medical, medical school, <clears throat> he went to, a, to work in a hospital and he was new. So they sent him to like the attic or something, to like one of these rooms where they have boxes and boxes of stuff. And he started going through the boxes and he started finding uh, suicide letters and he got interested in them. Yeah, suicide notes. And he started just putting them together and, and he got really interested in what, what can, you know, make someone, take someone to this kind of uh, um, I don't like to use the word choice because it's misleading, but to decision. So he started collecting these letters and he got interested in the subject. And, and that's what shaped his whole practice. It was it's an amazing that. story. Yeah. I love that. Again, I probably am going to say the wrong things, but you know, one of the myths that I was thinking of is that the person who commits suicide is selfish or self, you know, selfish. Mm, yeah. Is That's that a man, so right? So judgmental. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And since you opened the door, I will correct commit suicide because language is important. Uh-huh. Uh, we don't use commit anymore because that's related to crime. Okay. And that's very, you know, brings shame into the conversation for someone who is contemplating suicide. So... That up, that on the side, and I think I'm glad that you brought it up because I think it's the number one. It's not even a myth, but it's a misconception. I yeah. think, yeah, people misunderstand yeah. what it is because if you haven't been in that kind of pain, mm -hmm. you really don't understand that it's not about being selfish. And it's actually many. There's a lot of research that shows that it's the opposite those who are thinking about suicide and I can tell you my own perspective on that and my own personal experience, they actually believe many times that they're a burden and they will relieve their families and friends of that burden. So it's altruism. It's the opposite. Okay. It's not about being brave and it's not being about being a coward. It's about being in unbearable pain. I will say this a hundred times if I need to, but I'll give you an example. My father, he died on a Monday and he wrote me a letter on the Saturday and posted it. So I received the letter after he was dead. And he started the letter by saying that I know that I'm a burden to all of you. So it just shows that how their perception of things is so altered too. I'm so sorry. So, it, so it's true. Yeah, it was, it was the hardest moment for me. Because he, he died on a Monday and I received the letter on Tuesday. Oh, I am so it's, sorry. It's just, it was just 
heartbreaking for me. I just couldn't believe that he even planned so far ahead that he posted a letter. Oh my goodness, yeah. my heart breaks yeah. for you. Yeah. What was the what was your recovery? What did it look like? Ups and downs, and that's what it looks like. Grief, you know, you go up and down many at first, you know, shock, which is very common. Uh, I just didn't know what to think. And again, all the questions, all the what ifs. I never felt guilty because I was very, the last two years of my father's life, we were very close and I knew all the problems that he was having and I was trying to help in many of them. So thankfully, I don't have that kind of guilt. But I did have some uh, what ifs because it's almost impossible. I don't think I've ever talked to anyone who lost someone to suicide who do not have the what ifs. So just to give you an idea, the day before he died, I was talking to my sister and he came, he was coming to my sister's house. I was here in the U.S. on vacation. And my sister said, well, dad is coming. Do you want to talk to him? I said, no, I don't want to talk to him because I'm going to see him on Thursday. He was going to pick me up at the airport. So I hung up. And for many, many, many years, I thought, wow, I had the last chance to talk to him. And I didn't. <laughs> so that was my what if. Uh, so I went through that phase. And then I just, did, I was obsessively reading about this which was good in a way because it helped me understand but at the same time it made me relive his death all the time and he lived his pain and I was just too immersed in suicide so that had a very heavy toll on me I developed depression I had treatment and I but thankfully at the time I already I was studying this so much and I knew the symptoms, so I could tell that there was something going on. And I went to, I, I saw a doctor, a psychiatrist, one of the psychi psychiatrists that I had interviewed for the book. And he, yeah, I was diagnosed with depression and I had treatment. I had to stop the book for a few months, you know, just to take care of myself. And mm -hmm. so I went through the treatment. After one year, I stopped. He told me, you don't need any medication. I stopped and I've, I've been okay since then. But mourning is like that. And a grief, you know, you go through phases and you go back to those phases again and you feel this and I'm fine. And then I just decided, you know what, I'm, I'm just going to turn this into my mission because there's just too many people going through this. And, the, and especially back then, today you can find way more people to talk about suicide. But in Brazil at the time, there was nobody really. Mm -hmm. So, and this is what I do. And, and I find that it helps because grief, it's, it's ongoing. There is, no, there is no closure. That's one word that I avoid with my, with my clients, for example. We don't talk about closure because it's just things that go up and down and we go through different phases of grief. Yeah, and I can feel that for the family and the loved ones, you know, that are still here, feeling that, oh, I should have done this, I should have said this. Mm -hmm. It's impossible. I've never interviewed someone who said, yeah. no, I don't feel any guilt. There is guilt. It can be guilt about the relationship you had and you have no time to repair, for example. But there's always something there that you feel that you could have done differently. And that's where many of the, of the survivors get stuck. They, they get stuck in the doing grief is all the what ifs, what could I have done and anger. Mm -hmm. Gang anger is a major one too in grief when you, when you talk about suicide because it brings a lot of guilt because you feel angry many times 
towards the person who died. Mm-hmm. And that makes you feel guilty again because you shouldn't, they're dead, right? So it's just this roller coaster. It's a very hard uh, grief to go through. I mean, I can imagine it's, it's got to be the worst. Mm, yeah, yeah, it's considered like the worst kind of, some, some authors consider the worst kind of grief. Yeah. And, you know, unfortunately, it just takes so much time. But, you know, to, to have that suggestion and make sure that if you are somebody who is experiencing this, to talk to someone and get help Reach and get out. treatment. Yeah. Reach out. I'm, I'm glad you, you talked about this because I, I have a few interviews with people who attempted suicide. And they all tell me that, again, what helped was the moment that they reached out or someone reached out to them and, and they felt that they could talk to someone about mm-hmm. their feelings and what they were going through. Mm-hmm. That's, that's really the most important first step. It really is. I just, I'm curious when I said, you know, commit suicide, what is the language around that? What is the, the, the new language? Oh, okay. I would just tell a few things that we avoid. One is commit because it's related to crime. The other one is, oh, he, he wasn't successful. There is no success in, in suicide. So you use words, uh, usually what we say, he attempted or failed. Again, we don't use that because the opposite is of fail is what? right yeah yeah Uh, Mm -hmm. so uh we say attempted suicide and we say died by suicide died by suicide yeah okay 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 so okay that's great to know because yeah i did say he wasn't successful in the beginning before Mm -hmm. we started recording i get that yeah i get that that's the opposite a fail (laughs) yeah Yeah, exactly right can i make a suggestion because i think it's it's very helpful and yes People ask me a lot, so how can I identify which, which are the signs? Because so, I, I think that really helps because sometimes you think, well, maybe they are, but how, do, how can I know, right? So first of all, think, uh, think of, of depression, for example. Most of the signs of suicide are very closely related to symptoms of depression. So people, they isolate themselves. They stop doing activities that they used to enjoy. They don't care about their appearance anymore. They stop like taking showers or women putting makeup on. So they they just become more relaxed about that. They can stay home more often. They have sleep problems. That's very common. They become, for example, uh, interested in death-related things like music and novels or Anything that's related to death, sometimes they become obsessed with that. So when you think about suicide, and if you read about the symptoms of depression, these are some of the signs. But there are signs that to us are red flags, because it shows that they have been through ideation and they have planned their suicide. So they're very advanced in the planning. So one of them, and I'll tell you, when I, when I learned about this, I went like, check, check with my father. He did them all. One of them is take care of their affairs. For example, financial situation, if they have debts, they'll pay their debts. My father, a um, few months before he took his life, 
he contacted me and he invited me for lunch. And during the lunch, he said, Paula, I need your documents, your ID and everything, all the documents we need to open an account because I want to have a, a joint account with you. But at the time I was hel helping him with his financial situation. So I, I didn't think anything of it as sure. But actually what he was doing was to make it easy after he died for me to take care of, you know, all the financial things because uh, it was a joint account. Mm -hmm. So they take care of their affairs. One, the other one is very important is they, they start giving away their possessions, even if it has sentimental value and including pets. I have a very moving story of a woman who was telling me that her daughter, she was 22 when she took her life. And she used to tell her mom, she had attempted a few times before she had mental health issues. And she told me, Paula, she used to tell me all the time that when her dog died, she would die. And she took her life one week after the dog died. Yes. So if you have cats or dogs or any kind of pets, you know the kind of love we have for these pets. So if they start giving away their pets, that's a, that's a sign that they're, you know, taking care of things and saying goodbye. Saying goodbye is another very red flag. It's a red flag for us because they start calling friends that they haven't talked to for a long time. They start reminiscing to about, you know, past trips and people they used to hang out with. They will be calling you if they haven't talked to you for a while. And you can tell. I had an experience, and this was back when I was writing the book. No, I had just published the book. So I knew about these signs and just shows how helpful it can be. A friend of mine called me, and I could, one minute into the conversation, I could tell that she was calling to say goodbye. And I immediately asked her, and, and that's what you should do, immediately ask about suicide. You can use the word and be very straightforward about it. So I asked her, are you thinking about taking your life? And she just burst into tears. She had everything planned for that week. So I did what we need to do. I just sat down. I said, tell me what's going on in your life. And I, we talked for a long time. And I offered her help. I took her to the doctor and she's still alive. Oh, my gosh. Were you doing this work when that was yeah. going on? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, was, I, was, I had just published a book. So I, so I knew, but it just, it just shows how helpful it can be to know the signs. So if they're saying goodbye, if they're taking care of their affairs, if they're giving out their possessions, <clears throat> if they're reminiscing about the past, they want to, the other thing is they stop talking about the future. So if you ask them, my father again did the same. My sister was talking to, to him the day before and asking, are you, I told you he was going to pick me up at the airport. So she, she, was, she would ask, and she asked like three times, are you picking her up at the airport? And he would go, you know, I remember the time when me and Paula did this and that they go back to the past. And the reason for that is because in their minds, they know they have no more future to talk about, so they don't talk about it. So these are very subtle things that you can pay attention. And the last one, because it's a very misleading one, and I'm sure you've heard this before. Well, but he or she was doing so well. They were improving. They, it just seemed to be much better, especially when there is mental health, when there are mental health issues. And they're, for example, they're going on with their treatment and they're medicated and they seem to be doing much better. 
and then they take their lives. And that's the hardest thing to understand. But one of the explanation I can give you and maybe help clarify is that in their minds, because the pain comes a lot from the conflict that they have about living and dying, about trying something else or not. Or So when, the con- when they decide, and that's why it's a red flag, when they decide that they're going to take their lives, there is no more conflict. So they do, they do appear to be much better because the conflict is gone. <sighs> so it's very misleading, but it, it's a sign that we should pay attention to. Thank you for sharing that. Know, that makes so it's much hard. sense. And, and it's I'm hard. sorry, it's hard, but we need to talk about this. We have to talk the about it. The second leading cause of youth. Can you imagine? Breaks my heart. Mm-hmm. as it does everyone who is listening to this. We need to talk about it. There are steps so from the ideation, and you said you were checking yes. off the boxes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. I was in terms of, of the signs. When you think about suicide, we talk about it as a continuum. So okay. you, have, you have thoughts, and that's very common. Many, many people have thoughts about suicide at some point in their lives. So that's, it's not that it's not serious, but it's, it's pretty common, actually. We just don't talk about it. So there are thoughts, there is ideation, and then you can go into planning, then attempts, and then die by suicide. So it's a continuum. You have to pay attention. And, and it's very important to try to understand where they are in this okay. continuum. I would love for you to share what we were talking about before we started recording when I had said, you know, the research that I had done about the midlife white male, that was the Mm. highest statistic. And then you, you shared with me, can you share that? Yes. Yes. Um, Because it it is, it is, uh, it's also misleading because Mm -hmm. we look, when we look at the numbers, you see that uh, most suicides are male, right? When you, when talking about gender, but it's, it's misleading because actually women, they attempt three times, three to four times more than men. The reason why they don't die as much is because of the method they use. So men use a much more lethal method, usually guns. So they die more, but that doesn't mean that it's a... I've heard in, in even a conference that I went to, this person was talking about that as a, as a gender thing. It's a male phenomenon. It's not. We all... I mean, in terms of gender, we all do it. It's not a male phenomenon. They die because of the method. That's it. Okay. Women actually attempt more. Okay. Okay. What else? Uh, what else? Um, when we talk about youth, and I know that there are so many families out there struggling with this, with suicidal ideation, and they don't know what to do. So again, uh, sit down, you know, in terms of warning signs, you know, your kid, so you know what changes to observe. So pay attention to the signs. One of the things that we have to remember when we talk about kids is that their prefrontal cortex, which is the logic part of the brain, it's not fully developed. But unfortunately for them, the emotional part is, and that's why they're so emotional. So the emotional part of, of the, brain, the brain is developed, but not the prefrontal cortex. Well, you know, it helps them make decisions, weigh in pros and cons, moderation, all of that. It's not there. So just in terms of understanding why 
it sometimes they do things that are not logical it's mm-hmm. because the brain is not developed it doesn't develop until you're tw- around 25 years old really i didn't know yeah. that yeah not many people know that so things to that really help that we never think about food intake very important that they eat well one I, i'm i'm going to tell you something that i'm sure you're going to go wow i didn't know that either <laughs> Good. Tell we, me. We talk about neurotransmitters as, as this brain chemistry, neurotransmitters, especially in serotonin, right? Mm-hmm. Everybody knows what serotonin is. Mm-hmm. But do you know where 90%, more than 90% of serotonin is produced? Mm. In your gut. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So it's very important to pay attention to what they eat. Exercise is central to mental health. And these are things that we usually, we usually think about medication, right? It's the first thing that comes to mind. But pay attention to what they eat. Pay attention to how long they stay on their screens. That's very important. There is a study, a new study with more. I think it's 510,000 kids uh, showing that there is a direct link between the time that you spend online and suicidal ideation. So if you spend more than what the research shows is that more in this was in the U S more than three hours a day, there is 30, a 34% higher chance of you developing depression and suicide, suicide related issues. So pay attention to how long they stay online. That's very important. Now, is this for kids up to 25? It's young, it was younger than 20. If I'm not mistaken, it was up to 19. 19, okay. Yeah, on my website, you can find there is a okay. web, uh, there is a page on youth. You find the research and a link to the research. Oh, great. Okay. It shows because that's one of the main debates that we have today, the impact of social media, like bullying, all of that, and all this idea that everybody's happy on social media and what's wrong with me. But with us adults, because we have this area of the brain developed, we look at it and we know that that's not true. That's not the full picture of their lives because we're all always happy and we're always traveling and everything's fine on social media, but we know better, but they don't. They think concretely. Mm-hmm. So they believe that if everybody's happy like this, how come I'm not? There's something wrong with me. That's how they think and how they feel. So, Oh my I, gosh, social media is so misleading. Yeah, it is. But at the same time, it's, it's, it's where they develop their communication skills mm-hmm. today, their social skills. Uh, you really can't, you can't take that away from them. And it's yeah. a great thing. I mean, there's, there are many great things about social media, not just that, but internet as a whole. Oh, but yeah. again, it's a, again, it's always moderation. Moderation. So this, I mean, just yeah. thinking three hours, it seems a lot, a lot, but I'm assuming that a lot of kids, especially in 2020, the average. Just say 2020, or it's more than that, probably. It's, it's the, average. the average. The average is three hours, mm. but most people spend more than that. Mm-hmm. But for us, for example, I, I'm sure I spend at least three hours a day, but I do, I'm, I'm updating my website. I'm doing my podcast. I watch a lot of videos. 
I don't even have social media on my phone because I don't want it. I have it on my computer just so I avoid it Mm -hmm. because I know how addictive it is. Mm -hmm. So I pay attention to how long I stay on it too. Mm-hmm. But for them, it's, it's the way they connect nowadays mm-hmm. for kids. So yeah. I'm not saying stop it and take it away from them. Don't because you're going to have yeah. all the problems because they're going to be isolated. Mm-hmm. But just pay attention to how mm-hmm. long they are. Right. It is, it is a gift. It is, it is a gift to have it, to be able to connect. Yes, um, of course, yeah. I, And, you know, I'm speaking as a, a 52-year-old woman. It's, it's a gift. But then, yes, we have to put those limits on it. And I'm a huge fan of taking it off my phone when I have to just completely step away. And you can access that stuff on your computer. <laughs> it's just I do. not as I have, easy. I have so many rules for phone, Laurie. My friends they kind of hate me sometimes. My sisters, they hate me sometimes. Because you never answer your phone. You said I have a time when it just t- shuts itself off automatically. Oh, I, yeah, I, yeah, you can do that, you know. Wow. Yeah, times, yeah I just, it just does it automatically. So I, yeah. I won't hear. And I, what I do is, well, if, what if there is an emergency? That's, what I, that's everybody's excuse, right? But what if there is an emergency? Every phone, you can set up some telephone numbers, family members that even if it's off, it will ring. So that's oh, what I do. Okay, this is and I always tell good. my sisters, if it's important, just call because I yeah. will answer. Yeah, that's a good tip. That is a really good tip. You know, with you doing this work, it's, it is heavy and Mm -hmm. you know, you are in it every single day. How do you take care of yourself? Oh, so many ways. I, I do exercise. I I love dancing. So I do Zumba less. And now with the pandemic, I can go to the gym, but I've found great online sources on, on YouTube. So there's no excuse for not doing exercise nowadays, right? You have YouTube. Yeah. So I watch, I do dances. I walk practically every day. I take walks and always, I'm in Portland. It's a beautiful place. Oh. There are trees everywhere. So mm-hmm. many beautiful parks. So I take my dog. I have a dog. I kiss him all day. So I take him for walks. I have great relationships and I, I work. And that's one thing that I do. It's like work. I call friends every day. I talk to them, I email them, I message them, but I call, I make sure I hear their voice because that's one thing we've lost contact with and it's not the same. Messages are not that great for connecting. Mm -hmm. So I keep, I have my friends in Brazil that I keep in touch and that's very important for my mental health, just keep in touch with them. And I do something that I'm passionate about. I do this yeah. with, you know, I, I found meaning in my life and there's nothing more important than that. Mm-hmm. I feel like it's a beautiful way to honor your father. Yes. The work that you're yeah. doing. And I'm just so happy to connect with you. And I would love to have you back on and continue this conversation because I don't want it to just be a one episode <laughs> yeah, you can have me back and we can talk about menopause. <laughs> oh gosh, yes. Absolutely. Oh my gosh, I didn't you even know? ask you about menopause. <laughs> no, you know what? Uh, we can talk about menopause and the other uh subject that I would love to talk to you about because I know it's it's very important to you and I applaud you for that is the fact that you stopped drinking. Um and my father was an alcoholic. I come from a very very addictive family. A lot of addiction. Mm-hmm. Uh, in my family, so I can talk about you know the kind of impact it has, and also what research shows because i I do a lot of research on that 
Well, how about we set up a part two then for September and, and keep this conversation going because those topics, we have to talk about those. And, you know, what you were saying when we were talking before I started recording about alcohol, uh, alcohol is pushed on you. It's the hardest addiction to give. I, I have no doubts about that. I always applaud people who manages to stop. I just, it's to me, it's unbelievable that someone even does that because society pushes drinks on you. I know because for many, many years, because of my bad experience with alcohol and the, I know the impact that it had on me, mm-hmm. I wouldn't drink. And it was just, and still today, I, I drink very modestly. I would I have one drink, two at the most. Mm-hmm. And people go, wow, you stopped already? And I have to really breathe in to not be rude because I understand that it's cultural, but it's just so upsetting to me that someone would push alcohol onto others. Mm-hmm. I mean, why do you do that? You want to drink, you do your thing, I do mine. But, but it's part of the, I think it's part of the psychological trauma mm-hmm. that it leaves in you as a child of an alcoholic. Very, very sensitive. So we can talk about that. Yeah, we'll set it up after we're done here. Uh, anything else that you would want to share? Uh, I would love to ask your listeners if they have any experience with suicide, either they're at risk or they're, they lost someone to suicide, to feel free, free to contact me if you have my website on mm-hmm. your notes. Mm-hmm. They can contact me through that or even my website. I have my uh, email is there. So I would love to hear them, to hear their story. Yes, please do that. Please start that conversation and go to Paula's website and get some language and you know, feel more confident about this. I feel like that's how I feel now because, you know, I won't tell you, I'm, I'm, my stomach's been in knots all morning because I thought, yeah, just do some breathing. Yeah, just do some breathing. <laughs> and and uh, thank you, listener, for going all the way through. I I'm, I'm sure. I was thinking <laughs> about sure that. it wasn't easy. If you're still here, thank you so much for listening. I hope that you are. I know that you are. You know, this is all we can do right now uh, is start this conversation and then we'll keep it going. And I'm just uh, very grateful to you for the work that you're doing. I am so happy that I found your podcast on your birthday and I reached out to you and two days later, you're like, yes, we're doing this. This is going to be great. This is what it takes. I'm all for it. Mm -hmm. I will do anything Mm -hmm. just to be able to get this out and to not have that stigma around anything because we're not alone in this life. Yeah. Yeah. And thank you for helping my audience. I have great uh, respect for people who have the courage to open up this dialogue because it's, I know it's hard. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you. Thank it you. takes a special person to do that, Lori. Oh, you're so sweet. Thank you so much. <laughs> thank you so much. You. And then your podcast and your book, you're writing a second book, right? No, it's actually, it was actually the second edition. Second I have, edition. I have three published books, but only one on suicide. And the second edition just came out in English and it's all updated and it has a lot of stories, a lot of interviews. It's understanding suicide. Okay. Living with loss, paths to prevention. You can find it on Amazon. Okay, great. Yes, I will have everything linked down below. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure and an honor and we'll see you again next month. Okay, <laughs> go, go drink some water and do some breathing. <laughs> 
do some deep breathing. Yes. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you. Before I go, I want to tell you after we got done recording, I had a conversation with Paula and she was talking about 2020 and the pandemic. And she was talking about loneliness as an epidemic. And it's something that we will talk about next month because she is going to be coming back on as a guest and we will continue the conversation. But she said loneliness is an epidemic and the pandemic highlighted it. So what we were talking about was the conversation around, you know, making changes in 2020 and looking at this as, you know, what what's going on in my life? And, you know, what we talk about a lot here, what's working, what's not working and making a shift. If you're feeling lonely right now, please reach out to someone. You can always email me at hellolori at lorimassacott.com. Reach out to Paula, go to her website and check out her resources. And just know that we are in this together. I'm here for you. And now we have Paula Fontanelle, who's going to be just a wonderful addition to this podcast. And I'm so grateful for this conversation. It was tough. It was a draining day and uh, I feel so much better just getting it done. So I would really love to hear your feedback and, you know, message me on Instagram or send me an email and let me know what you thought or if you need help with something and I can direct you in some way, I will do it. And so will Paula. I'll see you next week. Another virtual hug sent. Peace. You've been listening to Understand Suicide, the podcast of journalist and therapist Paula Fontanelli. If you've been touched by suicide and believe your story might help others, please consider contacting Paula through her website, understandsuicide.com.